0: With that, I want you to open to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. The last prophetic words spoken in the Old Testament. We're going to go to that book for the answer to maybe one of the most important questions we'll we'll ever ask. So, I hope you're ready to go deep today. That question being does does god really love us and if so how when? when 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 has he loved us how has he loved us last week nathan kind of helped wrap up our series on the meta narrative of the old testament that meta narrative that overarching story that explains all other stories the bible isn't just a a book of good ideas it's a book that explains all of reality and the God of that reality and how we're to relate to that God. It's all-encompassing. And he traced the, the seed, the messianic seed, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God made that, that promise, that, that early, we call the proto-evangelism, the first evangelistic message, by the woman's seed, I'll crush Satan's head. And you can go through the Old Testament and trace that seed. And I hear he hit just about every book and like ended way earlier than I ever end. So that's pretty amazing for you to pull that off. I can't wait for the podcast so I I can listen. That sets the stage then for the New Testament. And we're going to preach through the book of Luke starting in September but I wanted to go to Malachi today being the last prophetic word of the Old Testament. I mentioned two Sundays ago that Nehemiah chronologically is technically the last written words of the Old Testament. But Malachi, theologians would consider the last prophetic word of the Old Testament. It, it closes the Old Testament canon and it's, it's placed last in your Bible should be easy to find then, just keep going through the Old Testament till you run out of books. It's the last one. And we're going to look at another major theme or, or scarlet thread, as it were, that runs through the whole Old Testament. I won't go through all the books like, like Nathan did. We'll, we'll take a different approach. My goal when I first started working on the sermon was to look at the last section of Malachi where he talks about Elijah is going to come and proclaim the coming of of the Messiah. And Jesus goes on to teach that that Elijah figure was John the Baptist. And so I was looking to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New and start setting the table for the next sermon series. And God had completely other plans for me, I couldn't get past the first verse without being so compelled to share how amazing our God is and that your salvation is far more amazing than you could ever imagine. One would think that after everything Israel had endured, after every painful lesson taught to them by their God, And after every display of God's covenant faithfulness and loving kindness, that by the time we got to the end of the Old Testament, God's chosen people would would humble themselves and say, we get it. This is a good God. He loves us. He is faithful. This is the God we need to love with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is a God worthy of our worship and praise. And yet, we're confronted with a completely different story. The last prophetic words of the Old Testament describe a radically different picture. The book of Malachi depicts a conversation between God and Israel in which God exposes the utter rebelliousness of the heart of man. In the irony, to top all ironies, God reveals that sinful man who is guilty of not loving God has the audacity to accuse God, who is love, that he's not loving. Let me repeat that. In the irony of all ironies, sinful man who is guilty of not loving God has the audacity to accuse God, who is love, of being unloving. Let me read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What a strange answer! What a strange answer! You see that the scene, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. We have seen it together. We have heard the meta narrative, the whole scope of the Old Testament. And there's one thing that just keeps shining forth is God's love for a rebellious people. And the people have the audacity to say, you don't love us. When have you loved us? It's easy for us to see at a distance, you know, we're sitting here going, what? Are you kidding me? Well, let me count the ways. And we could count the ways together. How he he saved them out of Egypt through all the miracles and the parting of the Red Sea and brought them to the promised land and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey that they didn't deserve. And so on and so on and so on. We could create this endless laundry list. And many of the Psalms do that. Praising God for his amazing works and his faithfulness. But instead of that, God chooses to answer them in a completely different way that is very confusing to us. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What does that mean? First of all, we need to understand God didn't need to answer. God doesn't have to answer to Anybody? We cannot bring an accusation against the Most High. And yet, this reveals to us that we do in our fallenness. We question God's goodness. We question His love. Life doesn't turn out the way we want it to turn out. We, we question God's goodness and love for us. When, when have you loved us? Right? And when you're in victim mode and self-pity mode, it's hard to hear any answer. Because no answer is going to be good enough for you. So God doesn't have to answer man's accusations, but God gives an answer because he's loving, gracious, and merciful. But he gives an answer that's hard to hear. Instead of a list of all the wonderful things he's done for Israel, which is how we expect him to answer, he answers with this almost riddle. This is uh, not how we want God to answer the question. We're putting him on trial. We want a laundry list of evidence that he, he indeed loves us. And when we accuse other people in our life of not loving us, they defend themselves by giving the, the laundry list of things they've done for you. But of course, the thing you want that you're not getting is going to keep you from acknowledging any of those good things on the list. And when we give our response, it's very easy for the person accusing you of not loving going, oh, well, sure, but you did those things for yourself. That wasn't really for me. You, you did that to get something back from me. And so they question your motives. You see, we've already done the calculus and decided that we're not being loved the way we think we deserve to be loved. And this is what Israel was doing to God. How do you love us? This is what Israel was doing to God. And by extension, this is what mankind does to God. Because that's how we define love. What what have you done for me lately? The natural man only loves other people when they are pleasing to us, according to our terms. But that's not how God loves. And he's the definition of love. He's the essence of love. So he gets to define love. And we should listen today. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. This verse tells us that God doesn't love us because we are lovable or we deserve love. You know, honestly, I don't know if my flesh likes the sound of that verse. Here I am feeling like the victim and accusing God of not loving me. And he says that he chose to love me and died for me, even though I was a sinner who hated God. This doesn't sound like the message being preached in many of our pulpits across America. You know, that gospel that says God can't wait to love you because you're just so mm, so precious. It's not a popular message to be told God chose to love you even though you were utterly unlovable. To a holy and righteous God. Let's look again at God's answer to Israel when they asked, How have you loved us? He says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And he goes on to say, I've hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It still doesn't make sense how this is demonstrating God's love for Israel. Remember Esau, he's the older twin brother of Jacob. Jacob's name would later be changed to Israel. So in the immediate context when this is talking about Jacob being chosen over Esau to get the the blessing, and as Nathan preached that that messianic seed would go through Jacob and not through Esau even though Esau was the firstborn, even though Esau was preferred by his earthly father. But because Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel and became synonymous with the nation, in the far sense, this verse is telling us that God placed his special redemptive love on the nation Israel over and above other nations. Why? Because they're better than the other nations? No, in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God lays it out clearly. that Not because you were greater than other nations. But because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will display my mercy and my graciousness to the world by being merciful to a nation that doesn't deserve my love. Remember, Esau was, uh, his name means hairy. He was a burly man's man, hunter, gatherer. His dad's favorite, the kind of Olympian that would make every dad proud. And his younger brother, Jacob, was more of, well, literally a mama's boy. He hung out with his mom, learned to cook and administrate. Esau brought home the bacon and Jacob fried it up in the pan. Not literally, right? Because bacon was forbidden. But (laughs) how would you like growing up in that family knowing your dad preferred someone that you were never going to be like? So one day Jacob saw an opportunity to swindle his brother out of the, f- the family inheritance. His brother was famished, and Jacob said, I'll cook you up your favorite bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. And Esau, for an impressive physical specimen, was kind of a fool, and went for instant gratification over the family birthright. Jacob's name became synonymous with being deceitful. In the Hebrew, it's kind of hard to translate, but it has something to do with the grabbing of the heel. And that became a euphemism for shrewdness or or deceit, which some people see as a virtue and other people see as distasteful. To make matters worse, he and his mother conspired together to lie, to trick the patriarch of the family, uh, her husband, his father, into giving the blessing to Jacob. They sent Esau out to go hunting, cooked up some stew, brought it into the blind father, wore animal clothing to mimic that furriness, and lied right to his father's face. It feels like Esau, but it sounds like Jacob. Oh, no, it's Esau. And the father gives the blessing to Jacob. Esau returns, and um, the game that he caught was cooked up for a bowl of stew. Brought you the stew you wanted, Dad. I just got the stew. You were just here a few minutes ago. High drama, right? It'd Make, make a great miniseries. And the father can't pull the blessing back. He's already given it to Jacob. Jacob's going to get the family blessing. He got the birthright. And, of course, Esau's angry, and Jacob has to flee. And there's, there's tension between the brothers. Eventually, there is a scene where, where they make up, but there's tension between the brothers and the nations that come from each brother all throughout the old testament obviously israel came from jacob but the edomites came from esau the edomites were people who settled in south of the dead sea and they were called the edomites because edom means red and it was an allusion back to the red stew that tempted esau to sell his birthright so this nation had a reminder of um, where their beginnings came from. And if you're humble, the, the word reminds you of the foolishness. But if you're angry and proud, it just reminds you that you were cheated out of what was rightfully yours. God commanded Jacob to be kind to Esau and the Edomites. But the Edomites were kind of pesky all through Israel's history. The Edomites opposed King Saul. They were subdued under David and Solomon, but they fought against Jehoshaphat. They rebelled against King Jehoram. They were conquered by Judah under King Amaziah, but later they were controlled by Assyria and Babylon when they came in and controlled everything. In the 5th century B.C., they were forced out of their territory by the Nabataeans and they moved to southern Palestine and became known as the Idumeans. Herod the Great was an Idumean. Isn't that interesting and intriguing? You know, Herod the Great, the one who tried to have all the baby boys in Bethlehem killed. Talk about a family feud working all the way down the centuries. He became king of Judea under Roman rule in 37 B.C. The prophet Obadiah proclaimed, though, the utter destruction and extinction of the Edomites. It took a while, but eventually in A.D. 70, when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, all the Idumeans or the Edomites, were wiped out, and we haven't heard from them ever since, and yet we still know about Israel. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. This is God's proof that he loves Israel. It's not the answer they were expecting. It's not the answer we are expecting. It's not the answer the Apostle Paul would expect. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee named Saul who believed, like everyone else of that day, that God loved him because he was a righteous keeper of the law. He thought he had chosen to love God, so God must love him in return. And then God knocked him off his high horse, literally. The man who thought he was loving God told him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecute you? I'm loving you. No, you're not loving you, me. You're loving you, ultimately. You're self-righteous. You think you don't need my grace and mercy. God chose to love Saul strictly out of his own desire to demonstrate his grace and mercy. Nothing beautiful or wonderful about Saul. In fact, when Paul lists his resume after he's converted, which is an impressive resume, he says, it's all rubbish. And he uses a word that's euphemistic for human waste. What I counted as the things that made me special and worthy of earning God's love were actually the things, because of my pride, that made me deserving of God's wrath. And God chose Paul to be the apostle that would most clearly explain the doctrine that we call the doctrine of election. The doctrine that God loves redemptively by choosing some for salvation and giving those elect the ability to receive the free gift of salvation through faith. That even the faith to believe is a gift from God. He wrote Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. Paul also wrote in Romans 3, no one seeks after God, there is none that is righteous, no not one no one chooses god well i thought i chose him when i put my faith in in jesus christ as lord and savior from a human perspective you did you honestly did you chose to follow jesus and yet we find out after we're saved and begin reading our bibles that long before you chose god he was choosing you and gave you the ability to choose him back Left to your own devices, you would have never chosen him. I would have never chosen God. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before you had your chance to put your resume together. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Why? Why would He do this? According to the good pleasure of His will. According to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Historically, I'll have you know that the world has hated this doctrine. Or maybe we should say there's a love-hate relationship with it. Think about it. Israel accused God of not loving them because from their perspective they were worthy of love and were not receiving the things from God, the things that they thought they deserved, as proof of His love. The last thing that they wanted to hear was that the proof that God loves them was the fact that they were still around. Let, let me put this into human terms that'll help you understand how um, hard this, this, or how bitter this pill is for Israel to swallow. Imagine you're uh, a married couple, and the wife comes to the husband, and she says, You don't love me. Yes, I do. I, I do love you. When have you loved me? I'm still married to you, aren't I? <laughs> oh, you. You're right, because I'm such a horrible person. The fact that you stay married to me is proof of it. You no, know, that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly. Or will your kids come to you? You don't love me. I didn't get the present I wanted for Christmas. You don't love me. I hate you. Oh, of course I love you. No, you don't. How have you loved me? Right? And from human terms, we we was, well, there was the nine months that mom carried you in her womb and the, the 24 hours of labor and, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. But the, the kid's heart isn't melting because all he's thinking about is that one thing he doesn't have right now that he thinks he deserves. But. An unbiased observer would look at that scene and go, wow. They really love their, their child because I don't want anything to do with that kid. When you're the kid, you, you can't see it. And the last thing you want to hear is, you know, my proof of my love for you is the fact that I keep you around. That's amazing love. I, we got to go up to Stockton, bless my mom on her 70th birthday. Thank you for that opportunity to, to miss a Sunday. She was thrilled. What mom wouldn't be thrilled with all her family and grandkids together. And she was telling me a story about a family we were very close to growing up with. You know, who here has like a surrogate mom? You have like a second mom, you know, like your best friend's mom took care of you, right? And I've got a couple of these back in Stockton, and and God gave me some here. Some, uh, some of the ladies that are about my mom's age, I just, I, one of them said you could call me mom. I, lo- I love it. It reminds me that Jesus said that when you leave mother and father and brothers and sisters to follow me, you get exponentially more fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and, and the, the family of God here. Uh, my family's never lacking for the love of family at this church. And so my, my surrogate mom has taken in two teens whose father passed and, and there's no mother. Very sweet. And um, hugs, kisses, roll credits, happily ever after. Wrong. These, these, these kids are giving her a run for her money. Jennifer and I once... Uh, had a young man come live with us who was in a bit of trouble, and we thought his parents were just being unloving to him. After three months of him living in our house, we realized why his parents had kicked him out of the house. But we were naive and just filled with the love of Christ and thought we could save the world. So... My friend, who's the biological child of my second mom, says to these two teens, how could you be so unloving and rude and disrespectful to my mother? Don't you see what she's doing for you? Don't you see how much she loves you? Well, ironically, she gave her mom a run for her money when she was a teenager. You know, and it's like, when we tried to tell her This ain't cool. You need to be loving to your mom. Fell on deaf ears, but when she sees other people treating her mom in that way, she's like, what is the matter with these people? And so in a similar way, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, God has given us the Old Testament as examples so we can look at other people and go, ooh, how could you be so rude to God and complain and grumble? Because it's easier for us to see it in others first before we're willing to see it in ourselves. And so Israel petulantly, when have you loved us? I chose you when there was no earthly reason to choose you. I'm sure Israel wasn't thrilled with God's answer here in Malachi. That kind of stuff gets the prophets killed, right? Hey, I'm just the messenger. The more you realize just how sinful and undeserving of God's love you really are, the more you will realize just how great his love for you really is. The more you think you deserve God's love, the less amazing grace becomes. It's not grace at all anymore. I deserved it. I earned it. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Both deserved rejection. One was chosen. Jacob or Israel by extension, was chosen in spite of its character, not because of its character. Jacob was chosen because God decided to display his love and mercy to the world by extending grace to undeserving sinners. And God decided to display his justice and righteous wrath to the world by not choosing Esau. He could have displayed his justice and righteous wrath by not choosing Jacob either. God has that prerogative, that right. He is that holy. All are deserving of his wrath. The fact that he chooses anyone is a display of his great love and mercy. Anticipating Israel's denial that they were not worthy of God's love, Malachi goes on to outline five examples of Israel's sinfulness. I'll just list them for you in in chapter uh, one, verse six to chapter two, verse nine. Israel refuses to give God His due honor, and the specific example God cites is that they were bringing lame and blind animals to be sacrificed instead of the first fruits and the best. And God says, would you give this animal to your local governor? How would that fly? You know how to honor people. So why do you bring the lame and the blind animals, the ones that aren't good for breeding, to me? And then he sarcastically, and the Bible is filled with sarcasm, says, is there anyone out there who can close the doors to the temples? To the temple. You know, stop letting these people in with their lame sacrifices. In chapter 2, verse 10 to verse 16, the people are complaining that the sacrificial system was a cause of great weariness and, and, and kind of a waste. That's why they were bringing the blemished animals. They had completely lost sight of what the whole sacrificial system was about. The wages of sin is death. I've provided a substitute for you out of my grace and mercy and love, God says. They had turned the offering into weariness. Do we have to keep bringing these animals? What's the point? You know, do we think God is stingy or oppressive so we justify our own stinginess back to him? Why don't, you, why don't you go to church? What's the point? I mean, if he's up there, he can hear me wherever I'm at. Why, why the gas money and all the... You know. I, I could think of a lot of other things I'd rather be doing on a Sunday. This kind of attitude people have. In chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 6. He accuses the people of redefining God's standard of righteousness. He says the people who are doing evil call it good. And then when they see people doing evil that affects me, they cry out, where is the God of justice? Come on, God. Let these people get away with this. They're ruining my life. They're making me miserable. Where's the God of justice? But when it comes to them, they don't think they need mercy. And they were actually calling their evil deeds good. In chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 12, God accuses them of holding back their tithe. And he says, you're robbing God, holding back your tithe." Now, we're not going to do a sermon today on whether or not New Testament saints are supposed to give 10%. We're expected to give and to give cheerfully and give generously. Might be more than 10%. But it's the heart behind the giving that was the problem. And we see this in the New Testament when Jesus confronts the Pharisees over the system of Korban. Corban was this way of saying, I dedicate this money to take care of my aging parents because I want to be faithful to the command to honor mother and father. No, you're not. You just don't want to tithe off of that money. Jesus knew their hearts. And it's not just money. I I told a story first service about how when I was a new believer, I was asked to teach Sunday school, and I didn't want to teach Sunday school because I teach... Kids, all week long, let someone else. I I gave it the office. I gave it the office. That's my profession. That's my job. And God convicted me. Yes, I, I gave you the gift of teaching. I gave you the gift of being able to explain difficult truths to young people. And you're able to provide for your family and many other blessings through that gift. I'll come and give a portion back. Teach teach the kids. I didn't just give you that so you could make a living from it. You can teach people about something better than math. You could teach them about Jesus Christ. So that was a personal conviction. I don't mean to step on the toes of any of our, our teachers out there. That's something you have to work out between you and God. But I felt convicted I was robbing God with that attitude and I taught Sunday school ever since and you see why I love teaching children so much and still am involved with VBS and taught at Bible B this year and will teach it a, you know, any opportunity to teach kids I want to be there. It's It's my tithe back to God and it's not a duty, it's a joy. It's a joy. It wasn't at first though. All right, I'll go teach Sunday school. You know, The joy often comes after the obedience. We're waiting for the joy to come before the obedience. Change my heart and make, make me want to teach Sunday school, and then I'll go teach. And then, well, God just hasn't changed my heart yet. Now you're accusing God for your bitter attitude. It's not his fault. Finally, uh, God accuses Israel of repudiating his grace they complain that it's useless to serve god because they see no profit from it we keep your commands we bring we bring our offerings and still there's famine still there's drought still there's our enemies And they're looking at worship as this, if I bring you this, God, you have to, you have to give this back to me. You know, do, we, do we have that attitude? I hear that from people sometimes when they're not coming to church. Why don't you go to church? Well, there wasn't really anything in it for me. Well, since when is worshiping God for you? Yeah, we do get back. That's the amazing thing. That's a side benefit, but that's not why we we worship and serve and give. God is worthy of all these things because he first gave to us. Malachi closes out his message and effectively closes out the Old Testament by reminding us humanity is a mess. And he says... Elijah will come before the dreadful day of the Lord to prepare the way for God's messenger, his Messiah. And Jesus goes on to explain in the New Testament that John the Baptist was that Elijah. The religious leaders in in the world who thought they loved God were confronted by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, you think you love God? God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Did they love him? No, they hated him and nailed him to a tree. They, they were teaching the people what they thought was the right way to love God. And God showed up and said, That's, Don't put words in my mouth. That's not a fair characterization of me. Let me show you what love looks like. And they hated him for it and they killed him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's how he loves us. People reject God because they think he's not loving because he doesn't make all their dreams come true. And it it turns out he, he has better dreams for us than we have for ourselves. He does love us. And the proof of that love is that He chose to die for us so that we could have the greatest thing in all the universe. We could have God. We'd have a relationship with God forever. And even more incredible is the fact that after you're saved and you begin read, reading your Bible, you, you find out that you and I were so utterly sinful that God even had to give us the faith to receive the amazing gift. We were too prideful and blind to recognize a good thing right in front of our face. I know it doesn't make us look very good. This teaching that God chooses whom he will regenerate is called the doctrine of election. If you're t- Who here is tired of reading about the upcoming election? <laughs> I got a better election for you to read about. All right, and we're going to set aside books in the new theological library. They're not to be taken out of the library, but there's a nice comfy couch in there and a desk. You could come and read up on the doctrine of election. It's not something I preach about, and then you get it. You read about it, you read about it, you read about it, you read about it, and you think, I get it, and then then you don't got it. Because in many ways it defies human logic, and that's the point. When you start with human logic and start thinking about your salvation... You don't end up where the Bible ends up. But we should expect that this infinite God, who is so utterly and so not like us, would present to us doctrines in the Bible that leave us scratching our heads. You know, the kind of thing that takes faith to accept. Man left his own devices come up with man working his way to God. That's how man, starting with human logic, works his way to God. God will love me if I do A, B, and C correctly. Because that's how we love other people. I will love them if they do A, B, and C for me. And God says, you can't do A, B, and C. So I will just have to love you anyways. Even born-again Christians have trouble accepting the doctrine of election. It just doesn't fit man's way of thinking about the world. Recently, a pastor of a mega church down in Bakersfield preached a whole series against it and called any pastor in Bakersfield who teaches election a heretic. Yikes. My first two senior pastors, not Pastor Andy, other churches... Both instructed me not to teach this doctrine. One of those pastors was my first pastor as a new believer who wanted to know where I had learned the doctrine. Who's teaching this? But nobody taught it to me. I discovered it, or should I say God revealed it to me. In fact, he had given me the opportunity to preach one Sunday near Thanksgiving. We had no associate pastor. I filled in in the pulpit no business being in the pulpit, no preparation, no training, barely knew my Bible at all, just enough to be dangerous. And I was going to preach the sermon on how, like you could pour really good gravy on on bad turkey, God's grace could cover your sins. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Come a long way, baby. Um, two in the morning, three in the morning, I, I can't sleep, I know this, you know, there's a turkey, all right, and it's the sermon I'm about to preach. <laughs> and you're like, I'm watching the clock, and I'm like, church starts in six hours, church starts in five hours, church, what am I going to do? And I finally just open my Bible, which is always a good thing to do when you don't know what to do, and started reading Ephesians, and it, it, this doctrine of election hit me in the face. I'd never heard of it before. It would never been taught to me. And I'm like, whoa. If he predestined me before the foundations of the world, that changes everything. It's not that I got saved that night. I got saved in 1999 at a Promise Keepers event when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible doesn't say sit around and wait to find out if you're one of the elect. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I had some pride about how I chose to believe in Jesus. And that guy over there, he's choosing not to believe in Jesus. So you deserve eternal wrath. And then I found out that I deserve it just as much as he did. And God graciously chose me before the foundations of the world for salvation. How does that work? All I know is it freaked me out. And I literally threw my Bible onto the couch and backed off and said, this is is too big for me. This God's too big to handle. Yes, he is. He's, He's bigger than we can imagine. He's that sovereign. He is that sovereign, and I just shared with the church the next day, didn't know I was preaching a sermon on election. I said, I just read this in the Bible, and I think this is what it means, and that's pretty amazing. And then the pastor came back and said, please don't teach on that anymore. And that's when I knew something was up, and I'm going to go study this, because I don't like when people tell me, trust me, you don't want to go down that path. That's how cults start. You, you, you don't need to, to study the scriptures. I'll, we'll just tell you. Yeah, don't, don't, don't preach that. So it's a beautiful, awe-inspiring, God-exalting, pride-crushing doctrine. It, it radically changed my approach to Christianity because I understood that my life's not my own. It, it completely belongs to God whatever he called me to do that's what i must do my view of god had been god loves me so much that he died for me and now he wants to make all my dreams come true and he's already got dreams for me it 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 gave me more confidence in my salvation if i chose him then i can unchoose him if he chose me then no one can pluck me out of the father's hand which is that, exactly what jesus said it gave me more confidence in my evangelism i don't have to persuade people into the kingdom with my own human cleverness i preach the gospel and god brings in the harvest some people call this doctrine calvinism but martin luther brought it back into the church long before calvin did and long before martin luther was teaching it, Paul was teaching it, and long before Paul was teaching it, God was doing it and revealing it to us in the Scriptures. If you start with human logic, you will come to the conclusion that you chose God. And you say, well, what what do you do then with the passage I just read about God foreknew and predestined? And those folks would say, God looked down into the future, saw all the people who would choose God and predestined those people to salvation. When in reality, the Bible teaches that God looked into the future and saw that nobody would choose him, and he decided he would give some the power and ability to choose him. If you believe the first view, people would call you an Arminian, named after Jacob Arminius ironic that his name's Jacob and he doesn't understand the whole Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated passage if 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 you agree with the other view people might call you a calvinist but I try to reject labels cuz when people say are you a calvinist i don't know you tell me what you think a calvinist is i'm a biblicist i'm i'm a christian i'm a follower of christ and if my doctrine after reading the bible lands in the p- same place john calvin's did then but I think Calvin would be abhorred to know that people were calling people Calvinists. So, do we teach Calvinism from this church? We teach the Bible, and if it lands where Calvin landed, then I guess so. But we don't start with Calvin's doctrines and rearrange all of our theology to, to fit to fit it. But we're not going to be ashamed of the fact that God chooses those whom he will save because we believe it glorifies God. He is that glorious and we are that fallen that we can't even make the easiest choice ever presented to mankind on our own. He had to regenerate us, make us born again, open our spiritual eyes, take the scales off. You need any more biblical metaphors for this? there's lots in there, utterly incapable of making the right choice without God's help. I know there's objections, and the biggest objection to this doctrine is, doesn't that make God unfair? Like, if he chose some and not others, then does that make God unfair? And it's not as if God didn't anticipate this objection. Paul covers the answer in Romans 9. Read Romans 9 this week. You will find the answer you're looking for. And Paul specifically says, then is there any injustice with God? Right? He's anticipating that you're going to say that doctrine sounds unfair. Read for yourself his answer. In Romans 9. So the next time you're wallowing in self-pity or or you're legitimately struggling with suffering and you're tempted to question God's love for you as a born-again believer in Christ, remember Israel in the book of Malachi asking the same question, when have you loved us? And God's answer, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Through faith in Christ, you can be assured that God has chosen you not because of your good works or your good looks or your good talents or your good tithing record. He chose you not because you've chosen him, but in spite of your constant rejection of him and questioning of his goodness. Through faith in Christ, he loves you as if you were Christ. Through faith in Christ, he loves you as if you were perfectly obedient like his son. The son never rejected the father. He said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my father. When God chooses you and calls you into his family and you respond to that call through faith in Christ, you have assurance that that is how God sees you positionally. Fill in the blank. I have chosen your name here. If you are a born-again believer in Christ, God chose you. We may not always be pleasing to him, but that doesn't affect our salvation. When we sin, he still continues to love us. He's not pleased with our sin and disobedience. But he's not like us where we go, well, now I don't love you. Well, now I do love you. Well, now I don't love you. If that's your view of God, then you are in for a rough ride. And the days when you're doing everything well in your own mind, your pride's going to swell up. Well, God loves me, because look how good I'm performing. And then you fall into sin, and it's like, oh, now he now he hates me, he's rejected me. No, that's not how it works when you place your faith in Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called According to his purpose and those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and those he predestined these he also called and those whom he called these he justified and those whom he justified these he also glorified your salvation is so secure because God chose you that he can speak of your glorification in heaven in the past tense as if it has already happened. Now, you look at my life and I look at yours and I don't see glory. But because our salvation depends on God and our salvation is secure in Christ, he can say about us, you've been glorified. You are seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And by all things, Paul doesn't mean all the things you want from God. All the good things God knows would be best for you. If he didn't spare his son, why would he hold back on all the good things, the really good things in this universe? The Bible never instructs us to sit around wondering if we are one of the elect. Let me make that clear. The Bible never instructs us to sit around saying, well, I'll be obedient to Christ when I find out if I'm one of the elect. That's not how the doctrine of election is presented to us. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And we don't run around trying to figure out who the elect are so we can evangelize to them. We... Bring the gospel to all the nations. It's only after you've been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ that God lets you in on this amazing family secret. What's that movie, uh, Meet the Parents? You're in the, the circle of trust now. When you thought you were choosing me, God says, I already chose you. So give him all the glory for choosing you and opening your spiritual eyes to see the truth and softening your heart to receive the truth and giving you the faith to believe the truth and the power to live the truth. All comes from God. Not so that he will love you, but because he has already chosen to love you in Christ. Father God, wow, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves and giving us the power to make the choice to repent and follow Christ forgive us for ever take trying to take any credit for our own salvation all the glory belongs to you in Christ's name we pray amen amen you're dismissed god god bless you